it's not my campaign to try and change newspapers. There are other people out there doing that and challenging in different ways. I think what we can do is, you know, shine a light and show our own excellence in other ways. And I think they'll be entrenched. They've been entrenched, some of those newspapers, in their ways for 100 years or more. It's not about you. It's not about you being all up in it. It's about you communicating facts and and being the conduit for other people's stories. Welcome to Everyday Leadership podcast where I interview leaders not defined by position or title. Everyday people who lead their lives in extraordinary ways. And on this podcast, they share their stories, their life lessons and practical tools in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. You're waiting to go on air and then you're waiting to be cued and and you're on it, and just the buzz of being live, anything can happen. And at any moment, the producer might say, oh, something's happened here, or we need to go over there. So you've got to split your brain in half. Today, I have someone who I'm going to use, like the term we love to use in the black community, black girl magic, because that's what my guest today absolutely represents. When you talk about pushing boundaries and breaking outside the box and not being defined in any confines whatsoever. That's what my guest, Mavarin Cole, does. For those who don't know, she's an award-winning, in fact, multi-award-winning journalist, broadcaster, worked for ITV, BBC, QVC, Sky News, produced documentaries for BBC Radio 5, One Extra, Radio 4. She's a board of director for Birmingham Royal Ballet as well as first black female bear sommelier. I'm not sure how you say that, say that correctly. <laughs> sommelier, you're there, you're there, sommelier, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking to today, that's, that's who we're talking to. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you, Shope. Thank you so much for asking me to be your guest today. I've seen you, obviously, seen you on, on the news, I've seen you doing your thing, and I've seen you just expanding your growth and your reach more and more and more and refusing to stop mm. and that's also very very inspiring and that's why i really love talking to people like yourselves because oh. it was great to learn about your journey your history how you got there how you navigate that space that you operate in which is not easy at all no it isn't easy and thank you very much you're very kind it's really funny because you don't really see yourself in the way that others see you and um i think if i'm honest i'm just motivated by having different experiences in the media space trying to fulfill my own kind of um creative desires in many ways you know with some of the documentary making and things i've done and also paying a mortgage <laughs> Come on, let's not be around bush. Because ultimately, you know, you can fulfill your creative desires all you like and be doing stuff for free and being a busy fool. But actually, what you need to do is do things and ensure that you are uh, paid your worth in doing that. I've been around for a while. I was on a panel this morning talking about reshaping the face of journalism. But probably say, or some people have called me like a veteran. Of journalism. Do you like that term though? That's something about it. Do you like the term or are you like, nah, I don't see myself like that at all? 
I don't mind it, you know. Some people say veteran or she's a seasoned journalist, you know, been well seasoned. Scotch <laughs> <laughs> bonnet, salt, oregano, basil, bring it, basil, the Americans say, bring it all. No, I, I don't mind that because I have been around for a while, you know, my media career. I started out when I was 16, you know, I wrote letters to the local TV and radio stations asking for work experience. Which at the time, it wasn't even called work experience. It was kind of, can I come in and make the tea, do some photocopying? Like, I loved listening to the radio. There was something about the radio. I was like, I, I love what's coming out of the radio. Where do they do this? How can I get inside and see what's happening here? Is there any chance I could ever work in those spaces? So me, like, getting the yellow pages, finding the addresses of all the local places, writing letters, because it was pre-internet when I was a teen. And then getting those responses of, yeah, come in, was great. So the summer of my 16th birthday, I worked at BBC Radio WM, BRMB Radio, which I think is free radio now in Birmingham Commercial Station. I worked at ITV Central when it used to be a big office on Broad Street and they made dramas and quishes and had studios and it was, it was and I kind of like did little bits and bobs at these places. And when I finished that, I was like, oh, the TV and radio places look great. I think I want to work here. And then I was like, okay, let's sit back and figure out how that's going to happen. So, you know, I kind of inched my way along, like going, what's it like in these places? I would read, because back in the day, there used to be magazines called Lookin. I think Lookin was like a junior TV times or something like that for children. That's how old I am. They would have interviews with TV presenters, and the one I remember is Philip Schofield, because back in the day, he was a children's TV presenter. I remember reading an interview with him saying he started out in the media by working in hospital radio. So I'm like, what's that? (laughs) I'm going to go there then. What's hospital radio? And after my degree, because I did a degree in business studies. I was curious about that. How come you didn't do it in in media? Mm. I was a very shy girl. Even though I knew I wanted to be in broadcasting, I was very shy. I was very quiet. I I was not the person I am now. (laughs) But inside, I knew I was like, there's something in the media I like, right? When I was looking around for what degree I wanted to do, I don't recall either seeing or if I saw them, I wasn't attracted to any media degree. And there was journalism training available, right? Because I was interested in news. used to read the local newspaper, watch the local news as well on TV. There was journalism training, but it was very specifically for certain newspapers. um, And you either had to go to Newcastle, up north Newcastle from time, or London for the training. And I was like, no, I love home too much. I'm too much of a home bird. No, I'm a home bird. I'm a mommy's girl. I'm quiet and shy. I'm not going. And also the newspapers offering that training at the time, because I used to read them and my mom would read them. You know, when I read stories about black people, they were very derogatory. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. so why do I want to take myself away from my mom, go do training and work for organizations that actually don't like us? <clears throat> so, so the safest option was business studies degree, went to De Montfort University in Leicester because it was like a a pretty safe short journey so I could get back to home to mom at the weekend. That was my main motivator. <laughs> so business degree, you know, I managed to get two one. I hated 99.9% of my time at De Montfort University. I'm going to be really honest because it was a very scary experience for me. And the only thing that made 
university bearable for me were the friends that I found and met and found and who befriended me through the African Caribbean Society, the SU. Was the actual course itself you hated or the just co- the, the vibe itself? The course was okay. You know, it was a bit of computing. It was a bit of HR, a bit of marketing, bit of, yeah, bit of this, bit of that. Yeah. Organizational theory stuff. There was not the support. You know, when I think about what I do now as a senior lecturer and head of undergraduate journalism at BCU, we support our students. You know, you want to come and have a chat with us. You've got a personal tutor, meet them. You've got a student support advisor. You've got mental health and well-being. You know, if you need us, we're here. Come, come get the support. Talk to us. It was a total opposite at DMU. And if you didn't understand something on a module, there was no chance to talk to a lecturer because they came in a minute before the lecture, did the lecture, gone. They weren't very tolerant if you did not understand, were confused about something. So you just kind of just did the best you could, muddled through. And yeah, I know I had friends on the course. There was basically like very cliquey. There was the popular, sporty people. And there were the geeks and the ethnics. The geeks and the ethnics all hung out together. Well, we called ourselves that because we were like the mixture of the super brainy, you know, the black, Asian, minority ethnics. We hang out together. Yeah. And my girls who are... Still my friends today. Wow. Wedding, coming to big birthday parties. I'm going to London for that, for one of the girls' big birthday parties later in the summer. We're all still... That's amazing. We're all still connected. That's what's beautiful. Yeah, isn't it? They helped me through. They helped me survive uni. So I did come out with a 2-1 because I'm kind of like quite single-minded and I suppose I'm, I'd say I'm clever. I'll, I'll say um, so too. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't feel it at that time, but I was like, "Yeah, I got two one, yay!" Then basically, I spent ten years messing around, doing secretarial jobs and what have you. I didn't really find anything in marketing or HR or advertising that I loved. I did a few jobs in those areas. I was a trainee ad executive for McCann Erickson. One of my early jobs, hated it. Walked out the job. I walked out of many jobs, and and in the, seriously over the ten years, I walked out of many jobs. Tempt as a secretary, blah blah blah. Those ten years are kind of quite a blur, and I, I parted a lot. I went out a lot. I drank a lot. I just had my twenties, and they went. And then I realised <laughs> in the background was always media. Mm-hmm. I was always listening to radio. I was always thinking, mm, should I should be doing something to get there? Maybe I should do this journalism thing. And I was investigating the postgraduate course that I ended up doing. That so happens to be at the very same uni I'm teaching at, BCU. I investigated it, took the plunge. So about 10 years after I graduated, I did postgraduate in broadcast journalism at BCU. And it was the making of me. It's to stories like that where you have someone who has a burden passion and desire to do something but you don't do it immediately so the time people are like oh that's too late or I've missed the boat or I can't step into that and you just demonstrate that actually because you recognize that after the last 10 years of, of me enjoying myself I still really want to do this so then it's how that desire is still there how do I pursue this and make this actually reality to see if I'm going to be good at this or not rather than just keep on thinking about it and procrastinating yeah definitely definitely and the whole thing around even getting on the course was a calculated risk. I think everything I do, everything I've done, has always been a calculated risk. Apart from the jobs I've walked out of, of course. I couldn't afford to pay for the course. 
I was on a contract as PA to the head of Africa, India, Middle East at Cadbury's. So I was like an exec PA, but it was a, I was fulfilling a maternity contract and that was coming to the end. I saw this course, there were two places left. So I applied and you had to get a place before you could apply for a bursary, right? So I was like, hopefully get the place, got the place, boom. Then I was like, okay, so how do I go about getting the bursary? And I applied and every organization that was, there was three news organizations that were offering bursaries and all of them offered me a bursary. So I accepted the best one, which was ITV News. So they paid for my course and they gave me a six month trainee TV reporter contract off the back of me finishing the postgrad. And yeah, without that bursary, I wouldn't be a journalist you know, so I, I, bursaries are so important, you know, um, and it's good to see there are more around, more opportunities for black undergrads now, in that sense, and postgrads. So that was the beginning of the... The beginning of the end. <laughs> Am I joking? <laughs> the 25 years of experience <laughs> flowing all yeah, the way through. It's crazy. So I did my six months trainee TV reporter at Central News. It wasn't that much fun because the manager was a difficult person for many in the newsroom to get on with. I think he was quite an old school manager. I hope there are no more managers like that in newsrooms now. I'm sure someone will tell me there still are. So you know what? I left that traineeship vowing never to work in journalism again. What an impression. Okay. And that was me and the other trainee as well. There was two of us and the, and the girl I was training with was exactly the same thing because it had been such a traumatic experience. But again, I think friends, you know, good friends pull you through. And um, obviously friendship is give and take. But I, I remember when I left there, right, I got in touch with the, everyone else who I was studying with on um, that postgrad and was like, how, you know, how are you doing? What are you doing? Do you know if there's any work? If you hear any work going anywhere, will you just let me know? Because, you know, I need something. At the same time, I was signing back up with the temp agencies to do secretarial work. So I was like, had it. Well, it's terrible. It's terrible. Let's get some money. Mm-hmm. But in, uh, the beautiful friend of mine, who I will name because she's amazing, her name's Anna Holligan. And she is, uh, I think she's a Europe correspondent. And she's based in Brussels with the BBC. We studied together. She called me and said, there's some shifts going at um, the local radio station in um, Wolverhampton. It's called Beacon Radio at the time. She said, some new shifts. Come on, come on down. I think she, you know, wangled it, put in a good word for me and I got two weeks work and that kind of kept going for a while and I was just so grateful. So God bless you, Anna, you angel. And then, you know, that meant I had a bit more confidence and uh, I kind of flagged myself up to BBC Radio WM. And Midlands Today, so they're the big, like, you know, like BBC London, BBC Northwest, Tonight, all those big regional centres. So I went and met them, got offered a contract at BBC Midlands Today to be like a researcher, setting up stories behind the scenes, phoning people and just arranging for reporters to go and see them, all that stuff. And that really was my foot in the door into the BBC, like as a temp worker, so I did some contracts. Um... And then I kind of went back and forth between TV and radio and I was there for about four years and, you know, got into, you know, the more you prove your worth as, as a journalist in any newsroom, you get, you get better assignments. So the more you prove that you can kind of handle the tough crime stories or, you know, where a politician walks in and you're able to interview them and not be afraid, 
then you get the fun stuff. Like I had some fun stuff. Like when Will Smith came to Birmingham, I I said to my boss, it can only be me to do this. <laughs> uh, obviously I said it better than that, but he's like, of course, Marvarine, because I'd proven that I could handle all the other stuff. Right. Mm. So something as big as that, I was like, yeah, you can do that. And I remember digging up that story about the fact that Malcolm X walked down Marshall Street in Smethwick. I remember digging up the original footage and photography that happened at the time that very few people knew about. And I produced a package that aired, you know, on the 40th anniversary of the day he walked down the street. So I had the confidence to go, this is what I want to do, boss. And he was like, absolutely, it's yours. So BBC journalism was good fun, interesting. You know, I got to present on BBC Radio, did kind of like the African Caribbean community show on a Saturday night. Was breakfast newsreader, drive time newsreader, did some breakfast bulletins on the TV and stuff. Yeah, it was good. It was good. What was it like? Like, in, I know for breakfast, it's like super early. You need to get mm. in and, and all that. <laughs> Were you you're a morning person normally? I'm good at getting up on time for a job. If I have to do an early job, I'll sacrifice, you know, the night before the alarm. Five alarms are set. I'm up. And I can be out the house, showered, makeup on, hair done within about 20 minutes, 25 minutes tops in the car room. Wait, wait, you like, say f- uh, yeah, I can do it. There's five alarms? Yeah, because otherwise, uh, you've just, you can't sleep. You cannot afford to sleep through any because you have to be there. So for Breakfast Bulletin's BBC, because the first one is, is it 628? Probably changed now. You know, the ones you see that come up in between BBC Breakfast. And yeah. they go, and now we'll see what, what the news is, is where you are. And mm-hmm. it goes, Prip, and it goes to the region. I think the first one used to be 628. So you'd have to be in for five. Pretty sure I had to be in for five. Yeah, so I'd be hurtling down the motorway, you know, at half four in the morning to get to the BBC mailbox. Because basically you're on your own, like just pulling, just checking what was prepared the night before, pulling in any new news, seeing if there's any traffic problems on the main motorways, updating stories. Deciding which stories you want to run. You know, you're producing your bulletin. Honestly, I thought that there was like a team behind, everything's already created, and then you literally just give it to you, and then you go ahead and you present it. That happens on the big shows, BBC Breakfast, Good Morning Britain, Sky News, where you're a newsreader, your scripts are prepared, you do a check, a sense check, and you read from AutoQ. In regional news... There's a team, especially for the early morning ones, there'll be someone who'll work late the night before and prepare a selection of stories and leave you a selection of, say, 10 stories. The bulletin reader in the morning will come in and go, which ones do I want to use? Decide the top stories. Is there anything that's broken overnight? Might have been an arrest, might have been an accident, something's happened. You, You add that in, find any new pictures for that story. Like I said, check on the travel, update the weather, write those scripts. So you decide the order... Um, and then you'll work with a, a technical operator to get that bulletin on there with the two of you. And then for each bulletin, you just you'd freshen it up a bit, change a couple of, you know, take a, one story out, put another one in so that it's not the same thing. If someone's there watching your morning and seeing the same bulletin, that's dry. You judge it up a bit with different news. But yeah, you, you, you produce when you're on in the morning. Yeah. Oh, so that work. And you talked about yeah. you being in a position where you can tell your manager, I want to do that after proving yourself. How was that process for you? Because prior to that, you mentioned how you were just slowly building up the courage to even get into the industry and grow through that. 
and then you already had a bad experience at, at ITV. Mm. So how did you get to that point where you were willing to take on those hard and tough tasks and prove yourself that you were up to the task? It's really interesting, and, and it might be it might be replicated in, in other industries. I don't think journalism, it might be unique, I don't know, because I, I can't really say, but you have to be so resilient. And in journalism, you are led by your um, editor. So what the editor likes and wants in terms of stories goes, right? So if they have a certain number of stories or they see things that are happening on the day, they might allocate you a story and go, right, you go do that. And then there's, a, there's another level of people called the correspondents, and they will come up with their own stories and suggest them to the editor. And pretty much because they're more experienced, that's why they're correspondent, they're given carte blanche to go away, given a bit more time to go and sort things out. So as a reporter, daily reporter, you would get given stories, whether or not you like them does not matter, right? So you have to be resilient enough to go, I'm going to take this story. It's not the most exciting, but you know, I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to deliver it in the way in which my boss likes it. So I've done things like, I remember being sent to Stoke-on-Trent to a pub where a landlord was running a diet club for fat dogs. Not my kind of story at all. But okay. I okay. in there with gusto. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? Why is this interesting to a local audience? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess it's a bit of fun. And, you know, the owners who bought their dogs in and put the dogs on a scale are worried about the health of the pets. And, you know, British are a nation of animal lovers. I was like, I get it, but why me? But you don't go, why me? You go, yes, let's get those car keys. Let's drive to Stoke. Let's get this story done. <laughs> so that was one TV story I did. But then there are days where, you know, I was sent out to a church was on fire in one of the districts just outside of town. And um, I ended up being there all day. I think it was a more than 100 years old, uh, burnt to the ground. I think it was arson. And so that it turned into the top story. They send a live truck. I did a live at one o'clock. You're like... Everything's just happening because the story is so big now. It's your story and you can't go, oh, no. <laughs> you just you just get on it. Step up. Right. And I remember one day, classic day, the night before I'd been told, right, you're going to interview Barry from EastEnders because he's coming to do a play like at the Hippodrome or the rep, one of the local theatres. So tomorrow morning, Marv, what you're going to do Come in, come get your recorder. You're going to go and interview Barry. I was like, brilliant. So I put a nice floaty dress on and some sandals because it was summery, you know. I thought, this is going to be good. Nice, different, like, fun assignment. Woke up in the morning. It was chucking it down with rain. And my boss called and said, there's been some terror arrests in Spark Hill and you need to go there instead. And it was a time where there were lots of arrests of people on terrorism charges. So there was like national and international media was suddenly in Spark Hill. And there was suddenly like a line of us outside the house in Spark Hill where the arrests had happened. I'm like bedraggled, like a drowned rat in a pouring rain all day. In your dress? In the floaty dress and the sandals. Very miserable, very cold, um, with a TV crew being sent with to join me to do live reports through the day on what had happened. So some days your day changes and you have to just suck it up <laughs> and deliver. So when you suck it up and deliver, then the editor goes, so I think she's rated. Now she's rated. And I can trust her with any story 
And if she comes to me with a good idea and it all stands up, I'm going to go, yeah. So that's the position I had to get myself to. Sometimes you have to just pick your battles, something you don't like, keep it zipped, get on with it. Especially if you love journalism, you want to be, you know, telling stories in the news for an audience. Just do it. I love that. That mm. I, I need to do what I need to do to prove my worth, and then I can get to the position where I can actually say, "Here's I can pick my walls. I can pick what I want to do because I've proven myself." I think it might be a unique thing because I'm pretty sure you know you, you read the Sutton Trust. I think did a, a report a few years ago about elitism. You know, and elitism in all the professions and journalism is still a very elite one, dominated by older, kind of middle-aged, white men, privately school-educated men and women who basically get, to all intents and purposes, a lot of the times, a pass. We'll, we'll, we'll not have to do the whole getting rated thing because they'll be, given, they'll be given chances more readily. That's really unfair. And I know in some places it still happens. I think, you know, until the systems change in any deep way, You've got to acknowledge the fact that you've got to prove yourself because they don't, some editors don't see us as uh, achievers until it's right up in their faces. <laughs> so if I was a young person stepping into the industry now, what would be the key piece of advice you would give me to be able to navigate this, this space? It's what I teach. It's what me and my team teach our, our young journalists every day at BCU um, and we build in a requirement for them to learn how to write well, write news stories well and to construct them to an industry standard to get all of the facts from the various sides of the stories and check their facts and get into a f natural flow of news writing and get published, you know, work to get published with us as lecturers, as an editor. They start getting into a rhythm of publishing those who want to, because there are some who just find it a little bit too difficult or too challenging to write on a regular basis. We encourage them as much as, they, as we can. Um, those who do, do. Those who don't, don't, for whatever reason. And we encourage the same as we teach them, you know, mobile journalism skills and TV skills and radio skills. Go for your life, you know, produce what you want, run things by us, um, particularly if you're aiming for the more journalistic content, so we can approve what you're doing and give you amendments and so on. But the point of all, doing all of that whilst you're at university is that by the time you leave, you've got a portfolio because a 2-1 or a first is not enough on its own for a lot of the hirers and firers in journalism. And I get news editors, you know, those hire and firers coming to me going, who can you recommend for work experience? Who can you recommend for internship? Who, I've got a, some new roles coming up. Who can you recommend? And the ones I'm recommending are the ones where they've got a portfolio where I can show them this is what they've been doing. This is the quality of their work. This is the standard of their work. They're already a journalist. It's not just about they got good marks last year and they got good marks so far this semester. It's the extra to show that you are en route to being a, a, a published journalist who thinks and operates like one. So you have to start thinking about immersing yourself in journalism, understanding the differences between the Daily Mail and the Guardian, the Express and the Independent, right? Understand partisan newspapers, 
understand the different broadcasters. And then when you're talking about the BBC, it is so huge. Every station is different. Every program within every station is different. And just understanding what sort of news comes from different areas. Because you, if you don't have that understanding, you won't know where you want to pitch yourself or where you want to be or who you want to work for. You do need to have a sense of that. So my advice is, you know, educate yourself on the media. Get connected with what is happening in the media. And that's really easy. There are so many institutions, the Royal Television Society, BAFTA, there's online magazines like Televisual, you know, you only have to go to the Ofcom website to look at the broadcast regulations, you know, all sorts of ethical journalism network, we black journos, all sorts of places you can get yourself into the mindset of what is journalism about and what do journalists do and how they do it. I think there's something around acting like the position you want to be in before you get there. So once you're in that mindset and that mind frame, it makes it so much easier for you to actually transition naturally, even when the position is mm-hmm. available to you. Because you're not waiting, thinking, oh, I need to get through this course. I need to pass and get my 2-1 first, whatever. It's now. I need to start putting the work in from now. You mentioned papers like the Daily Mail <laughs> and the Guardian and different things like that. And obviously, you working in, in that industry, how do you handle when you see such articles and content that are written, especially around black people, because you mentioned when you were younger, one thing that turned you off going to London, for example, was the way they were writing, but a lot of that hasn't changed. So how can you push back or are you even allowed to push back because you're in that industry? The line I take around newspapers, okay, I explain the differences to students and I ask them to read the content and note the differences and the tones of voice around particular stories and we'll sometimes look at, you know, how has the story been covered today by, yeah, the Express, the Guardian, the Independent? Why is the story there and not here, right? So I encourage students to kind of understand themselves because I don't want to, um, you know, impress and really, really shouldn't be impressing our political views on our students. For myself personally, I don't. Click on the Daily Mail. I clicked on the Sun today for very obvious trending reasons um, around our certain allegations regarding our health secretary. I'm not sure when this goes out, show pay, but today is the day that that story has. Listen, I've been, I've been laughing all morning here. <laughs> right? And, and it's kind of breathtaking, actually, that story. It's awful what is written. And I don't, I don't see anything happening, changing anytime soon. If you look at what um, the statement that the Society of Editors, which is kind of the, the Association for Newspaper Editors, yeah. put out last year saying that the Society of Editors does not believe that the newspaper industry is bigoted, I believe. Yeah. Um, and the chair, um, who I know, stood down because she said, well, that doesn't represent my views, right? Some sections uh, of the newspaper industry are not interested in being fair to non-white people. And I think once you know that, you know, you either read their stories and get angry about their stories or you don't read their stories and you don't give them the clicks and you don't give them the money because the, the clicks equals ad revenue for them. So I decide to do that. I'm not working for the, those organisations, so I don't have any vested interest in them you know by not reading them they do a lot of those organizations do put into a pot of a bursary pot called the journalism diversity fund because they are you know as a way of 
showing that they are committed to diversity. And that pot of money is very sizable and it's great. It offers bursaries to students who get a course on um, an NCTJ course, which is great. You know, and it's just a shame that some refuse to acknowledge, you know, that the wealth of goodness and the contributions that are made by non-white people in this country. I think personally, I've just gone, I will not put any negative energies their way because I don't want to expend my energies. And, you know, it's not my, it's not my campaign to try and change newspapers. Um, there are other people out there doing that and challenging in different ways. I think what we can do is, you know, shine a light and show our own excellence in other ways. And I think they'll be entrenched. They've been entrenched, some of those newspapers, in their ways for 100 years or more. Hey. Can't change that. Mm. And one way that you've actually used your position in your platform has been around the Black Girls Don't Cry documentary that you created. And... For someone at your position, did you ever think talking openly about your battles with depression and things like that could be an issue or a black mark on your career and could hold you back? I didn't at the time, actually, because I was freelance then when I came up with that idea, which was probably about 2016. So as freelance as a journalist, I was presenting, you know, I was doing fluffy stuff at QVC. I believe that the slot that we went for at the time, which was like 11 o'clock Radio 4, because Radio 4, very specific slots for different types of content. All their commission briefs are online, by the way, so you can go and read them. And they'll say, we want kind of this kind of thing, these kind of topics. This is what we commissioned last year, and this is how much potential we'll pay you. It's all very transparent. And I think they wanted like personally authored stories. And I thought, you know, I didn't kind of want the story to be random and just go black women's mental health i thought it would be disingenuous to not inform listeners of my own personal connection to the story and that's the way i came into it and thankfully because it was my idea and you know i worked with made in manchester productions on it i've got a long history connection with them um, ashley Byrne and the team there who are brilliant who make some of the most diverse docs around but he knows my work and he said, well, this is your idea. This is you produce it. So you get the stories. I'll just leave you to it. Let me know when you need me. So I made a conscious decision to talk about some of my story, but there was no need for all of it or it should to be a lengthy exposition because in journalism, you as a reporter, the story is not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you being all up in it. It's about you communicating facts and, and being the conduit for other people's stories. So this is a little bit of me and my personal experience in the beginning, but it's a platform for Jade and Jay's stories and, you know, how they're coping with their own mental health. So I didn't worry, you know, when I was able to make those decisions about how much I said, what I said about the time when I was depressed, which is like 20 years ago now. Yeah. And, and so I made a decision to go. It only needs to be a small part because it is not all about me. Yeah. Since that documentary has come out, which will be in the show notes, by the way, what's been the response like from the community? This was a very powerful documentary shining a spotlight on an, an area and around that whole strong black woman troop and that's talked about a lot, and especially the last year, that's come out quite a lot as well. 
Yeah, it's incredible, actually, because, you know, this July, it'll be three years since it aired, which is crazy. I remember people WhatsApping me a message about the documentary before it was aired, like in the weeks leading up to it, like, listen out for this. And I was looking at these WhatsApps going, that's my documentary we're talking about. Because <laughs> like, oh, it's gone viral already. <laughs> I was like, whoa, this sounds good. Oh, it's mine. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Yeah, that was interesting. So, so there were a lot of people who were just waiting for it. And when it aired, then I got a lot of messages from friends, my professional connections and from listeners just going, thank you so much for talking about this and and trying to broach it. Because there's only 28 minutes, Mm. you know, could have been, you know, and it was a lot covered. Yeah, it could have been longer. I I think there was a lot of ground covered in 28 minutes, but I I would have loved to have been able to, to go more deeply into some of those things around, you know. And there have been loads of other conversations since about, you know, the stereotyping and the tropes and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, a lot of women going, thank you. This is amazing. And and I feel vindicated because I've heard that it's just not, it's not just me, mm. me being, me being silly, uh, me thinking oh, I should just brush it off. It's fine. You know, that there were some reasons, there were some factual reasons that were explored and some very powerful stories from Jay and Jade. And then um, the charity Mind, you know, awarded me Journalist of the Year for it, which was crazy. <laughs> and, you know, so honoured to receive that. You know, I'd love, to, I'd love to investigate it further, but how and where is, you know, is a tricky thing, but you never know. Mm, that'd be good. That'd be really mm. good. I, I've, I'm a man and I listen to it and I really enjoyed the the realities and the stories and the examples that were provided because it's an everyday experience and you hear people talking and sharing and it's that conversation, what you just said right now around, it's just me. It's just in my head. It's just happening to me. But actually the more and more you hear other stories and you can resonate with them, it makes you feel, this made you feel seen, mm-hmm. made you feel heard mm-hmm. and made you feel acknowledged and that's why it was so, it was so powerful was listening to it. Thank you. Really important to do, you know, because in many ways I thought, oh, is it just me? And why am I keep soldiering on being a hark and handle it? I'm strong, blah, blah, blah. You know, because you're meant to be strong, aren't you? <laughs> As a black woman, that's the, the trope. You're strong, you're independent, you can get through it. Well, hang on a minute. What about the times when I, I can't, I feel I can't get through it? Yeah. Do I have to hold it in then or is it it okay for me to let it all out and cry and talk to the GP and go, I am not feeling right? Too too right it is that you should do that. And shifting gears into a completely different topic, bear. (laughs) (laughs) Before you even got into the whole research phase and I was again commissioned by BBC Inside Out, were you into drinking beer? No. Okay. No. When did I start writing my blog? 2010. My now husband, says so my boyfriend at the time, him and his brother were like, yeah, we love real ale. And I was just like, what? They drink real ale when they go to a pub or like um, they'd be drinking lagers. And for me, I would have a lager and I'd like, ask for lemonade to be put in it to like temper the bitterness like to make it a shandy it's a shandy isn't it when you do that uh, no 
couldn't be further further from my mind. It was interesting in me researching. It came about from the fact I couldn't, I didn't want to believe the facts that were in a in a report that came out saying that you know, from one year to the next, double the number of women had said they love drinking real ale. It was part of their normal like repertoire when they went out for a drink, and I was like, no way. How can that be? And, and that curiosity of, I need to find out if this is true, was the, was the journey to like researching the story and trying beer, visiting pubs. And when I tasted the peach melbear, I was just like, this is outstanding. This is real ale. Like this beautiful, cool beer with a light peach notes on the nose, just delicate on the nose and then when you drank it there was again a, a delicate flavour of peach through the ale it wasn't like someone had got peach cordial and poured it into a lager it was it was just so subtle but really tasty and there was a little bit of bitterness a bit of sweetness it was all balanced and that blew my mind that that was an example of what real ale could be that one beer just made me go now I need to find more that just give me this, that, that turned my idea of beer on its head. And that's what I went and did. But you, you went to like a whole nother level, like create your own beers. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Because it's really strange because people asked me to. I started writing a blog. So I did, I basically pitched a TV feature, yeah, to Inside Out, BBC Inside Out and West Midlands to investigate the connection with women and beer in this country. Apparently women were the main producers of beer in the Middle Ages, in the English Middle Ages, right? And um, they'd be serving beer at breakfast and children would drink beer and all the rest of it, yeah. When was this? Uh, in the Middle Ages in England, yeah. And then, and then when industrialization came along, um, then the men went, listen, we can produce beer on a mass scale, so you stop doing it and we're going to put it all in factories and, <laughs> you know, breweries and whoosh, mass production of beer kind of took off. Um, but yeah. That was um, my little mini feature, investigated that and looked at, you know, um, where more more women uh, are drinking beer and looked at the details of the report with uh, Pete Brown, who's a fellow beer writer, award-winning beer writer. And I learned so much from that process. I was like, I'm going to start writing about what I'm learning about beer in a blog. People seem to like it. You know, I tweet my blog posts out. This is, this is like 2010, this is 11 years ago. Um, and I was in London a lot, so I'd get invited to brewery events. So I'd take my iPad and I'd do a bit of filming. So, and, and, and then I started getting invited to things. So invited to brew a beer in Lincolnshire with Brewster's Brewery. That was the first one, Chocolate Sin. That was a name. Chocolate Sin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't remember the story of that name, but I have to go back to the blog post. It's really interesting, that. I made uh, a dark tropical IPA with Brains Brewery in Cardiff. And I've still got a bottle of it somewhere with a little label with a little cartoon version of me on it. Gosh, I've been disinvited, you know, because because then you become like a beer writer, beer, and I was a journalist, as a beer journalist, got invited to press trips and things and new launches and stuff. And I've hosted events for journalists and I've hosted beer tasting parties for women. That's some of the best times ever, actually. Yeah. I did two lots of parties at um, Malmaison Boutique Hotels, 100 women at each party. 
Purity Brewery from Stratford upon Avon, who are awesome. They were straight. They were like, "Yes, we want to work with you. Let's do this." And it was beer and food matching, small pellets of food with each different beer, about five different ones, and it was so elegant and um, sophisticated. And all the women there were just blown away. So beers was like for the last decade, it's been part of my life. Love drinking it. Love trying new ones. Wow. I'm, 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 I'm not a beer drinker, so yeah, I don't quite like the taste of it. Really? Oh, I might have to <laughs> make some suggestions for you. Yeah. So what's your favourite? Really in- oh, I was going to say it's, it's hard and I was just thinking about, you know, if you're not a beer drinker, because when I first started, my palate was very delicate, so I couldn't take anything. I, I, I didn't like anything that was too bitter. You start with something like gentler, low ABV, and then the more you get used to the taste, then you can go more bitter and, and, and like diversify into different styles. There's two outstanding black-owned breweries in Britain. Anthony and Helena run Echo Brewery. Hayes, seriously, from Echo is just astonishing. Made with palm sugar. They've got an Echo Pills as well. Oh, they're bad. Echo bad. Rock Leopard Brewery is your other black-owned brewery that you want to be getting into. Stacey's incredible. And Wild Card Brewery, Jager Wise runs, is the head brewer there at Wild Card. Again, astonishing, astonishing beers. If you're looking where to put your money on the black-owned she gets sent a lot of samples in. <laughs> it's a hard life. <laughs> it's very hard. It's hard when you're tripping over boxes in your hallway because literally the deli- delivery is every day and it's like, more bin. And then I have to wait till the weekend to open them all up because it's just not enough time. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a hazard of the job. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great, actually. It's really kind that people actually... You know, PRs and brewers will just say, we've, we've got this new beer out. Would you like to try it? Would you like some samples? And I go, yeah, it's great. And, um, you know, like there's loads of influences in fashion and stuff like that. People sending me beer is not a tacit agreement that I'm going to put them in a column. So I always make that clear to anyone sending me beer. I'm just trying it to see what I think. And if I like it, and if it's going into a column or I'm mentioning it somewhere, or I'm taking it on a TV show, I'll let you know in advance. So. You can also tell, you know, everybody on your socials that you're going to be in this column or what have you. So, yeah, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have um, integrity around that sort of thing. And people don't pay me to, to, be, to place their beers as well. That's not, that's not what it's about. Never has been about that for me, you know. I get paid to write the column because I'm a journalist. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, people can't, you can't bribe me. Can't bribe me. <laughs> integrity. It's on point. No Black Miller allowed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the work you've done in, in TV, work you've done in radio, work you've done as a journalist, do you have a favourite between all of those? It's really difficult. Radio's always been my first love because when I was from when I was little, you know, six, seven years old, like I said, I'd love listening to the radio and just going, where are they doing that from? How can I 
being there having that amount of fun because it just sounded like so much fun playing records chatting in between taking a list caller reading out a request or whatever you know I was like this sounds great and so my first jobs and work experience were in radio so I'd say radio is my first love but I do miss television I miss live television because there's a certain buzz that happens when you put your earpiece in and you plug it in to your pack and you can hear the gallery. There's a chatter of, you know, your producer, director, the PA doing the count, camera, you know, they're giving directions to camera people and you're waiting to go on air and then you're waiting to be cued and, and you're on it. And just the buzz of being live, anything can happen. And at any moment, the producer might say, oh, something's happened here, or we need to go over there. So you've got to split your brain in half. You're presenting. This half of the brain, your right side of your brain is presenting. Your left side is listening, going, oh, I've just been told I need to do something completely different in the next 30 seconds to a minute. And that skill and being able to exercise that skill seamlessly is something that I just love so much. So I, yeah, I miss a TV studio. <laughs> when I worked at QVC, I've got to say, it's probably one of the slickest television operations I've ever worked in. It's a non-news operation, of course. It's all about beauty and fashion and technology and selling lovely things. But you could have fun. You know, you were chatting with your guests who were the brand ambassadors and the whole law management operation was incredible. So whenever uh, we went to a graphic of, you know, a shot of, product what would happen would would be that the viewer would see the product but on the floor the floor managers would sweep in change something on the ship on the set like take stuff off the table put something new or you'd be moving from one piece of the studio to the other cameras would all be sweeping around all this stuff would be happening completely silent and you're talking over a graphic and then the next time the viewers see you you're somewhere else with another product or whatever and it was just so seamless it was so slick it was it was beautiful to work in an environment like that where everybody is on point it's a huge operation and actually you know in the same way with with skies it's magnificent the lighting even to the point where i, I remember sitting you know when the, the, the lighting guy would come in and he'd be there for ages twist 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 Look at me, twist, 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 because he was making sure to light the my tone. Hey! Huh? Hey! Get a chocolate hey! out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the care and attention of like you need to just wait. I've got to, and um, to see black skin lit well mm. is magnificent because you know, it's just it's just one of the best things. So that care, that attention to detail in big, you know, kind of national TV operations is just a thrill to be part of, really. But I'm sure one day, I'd like, I'd like to think that one day I'll be back in a live TV studio operation very soon. Based on where you are right now, what is the next level? In fact, what does success look like to you? Because I remember reading... When you did your postgrad, you wrote down what your future ambitions were. So you kind of had that clear direction. So I'm curious, do you have that clear direction of what's next for you? I mean, you you explore so many different things. So yeah, I'm I'm obviously like running some courses at 
BCU right now, which is quite a, it's an involved job. Lots of students, some staff. You know, part of my job as well as teaching is to, you know, kind of support and, and nurture and in some ways mentor my staff around what they're delivering, looking at the curriculum of each module and ensuring we're up to date. We've always, you know, from when I've started at BCU anyway, I've always been had an eye on decolonizing the curriculum, right? And making sure that the images our students see, the examples of journalism that they read, the journalists that we put them in touch with or that we connect them with, you know, they are a whole wealth of people, right? So they can see what's possible for them. So, you know, some of that work is looking at new books from black and Asian scholars in the space and getting those onto reading lists. So that job's really involved. And it's so involved that that's why I wanted to do my column, you know, so I can just get a creative outlet, you know, the beer column, which is great. And I'm also, I've got my own kind of indie, my own small indie. And, you know, I would like to get some broadcast commissions, whether they're kind of podcast commissions or TV doc or TV feature commissions. So I'm always looking out for those sorts of opportunities and thinking up ideas for those. Um, Yeah, and I suppose that's what I think is ahead at the moment for me. Yeah. My last and final question would be, what does leadership mean to you? Wow. Leading by example. Someone who does well in a particular space who can handle themselves well in the bad and the good times. Someone who's authentic. I think probably only now in the last five years have I been able to feel like I can be the real Marverine in my job roles. And I think that's because, you know, in media, as a black woman, you know, you have to have straight hair and all the rest of it. And you have to get rid of your accent and all the rest of it, particularly this accent. I mean, how many times you hear, apart from my amazing mate, Alison Hammond, right? But of this morning. She's all herself. <laughs> I love her. I love her. She's allowed to be her, but she has been her from day one. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, she came from an incredible show where everyone loved her for being her. So there was no reason for her not to be her. But in a new space, you don't hear this from a black woman either, right? So in the last few years, you know, I've been able to be more authentic. So I think authenticity is important. You being you and leading the way if you can, you know, creating opportunities for others because part of my reasoning around, you know, wanting to get commissions, broadcast commissions is driven by not just me. I don't want to do it all. It's not all about being having me back in front and center. It's about my desire to try and create opportunities for young aspiring media professionals and journalists because you know i remember how tricky it was for me i haven't got anyone in my family who works in the media i've got any friends any people to lean on and go oh get me this you know i kind of just muddled my way through and it still appears quite difficult for black asian and minority ethnic youngsters to make their mark in some places and so if I can help by going, got this commission, need people <laughs> to write to make this happen. Bring them in. Here you go. Right. That is what leadership is, is trying to bring others through. 
And that's part of what I do, you know, with, with teaching as well. And I think that's it. When I, when I say at the start, massive piece of my work when I'm working with, with leaders and organizations especially is around helping them break outside their box. And you are a great example of what happens when you break outside the box. I mean, the different industries you've been able to go into, and especially when you hear your story and, and your come up, where you haven't stayed small. And I'm sure people have tried to keep you small, but you've refused to stay mm-hmm. small and you keep on pushing and expanding your reach and especially defining yourself. I mean, you never hear I mean, black people and bears not synonymous, let alone black women leading the way in that industry. That's something you're doing, mm-hmm. let alone other different things, other areas that you're operating in. So you're definitely a great example to emulate and especially the work you're doing um, at BCU as well. So it's always great just just to hear that original story and just to give you some appreciation and to say thank you for your work and keep on doing you keep on shining that light and keep on helping other people through thank you so much i really appreciate it and you know even just being asked these questions is really interesting because you know you just kind of get on and do what you do and you don't really think much about what you've done so Thank you for thinking of me for your podcast and asking me as a guest, honestly. What you're doing in shining a light on magnificent people, because I've seen your series, right? And I've been listening to the pod and (laughs) some of the people on there just are outstanding and inspirational. So I'm honoured to be part of that that section. Absolute pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Leadership. You can check out the show notes on www.mindsetshift.co.uk forward slash podcast where you can find out more about my guests and how you can contact them. You can listen to old episodes or if you have a question about this episode or any other episodes, you can just press a button and ask me that question and I'll answer it on the next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share this podcast with someone else. We'll see you next time everyday leadership.